Uh, please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 1, 1 through 14. So please read with me the verses in bold. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption, redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were seated with the promised Holy Spirit, sealed, <laughs> who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel. Um, I think my name tag, I think I put Danny. Um, I think next week it'll be Dan, and the week after it'll be D. Uh, <laughs> just trying to switch it up a little bit, but I am Daniel, one of the pastors here at uh, Grace Sacramento. Thanks for coming today. Uh, really glad to be a part of a worshiping community uh, that loves Jesus, and uh, so thankful to be here this, this morning. Well, over the years, uh, different people have pointed out peculiar mannerisms and, uh, or particular idiosyncrasies uh, when I preach. There's the speaking really fast and then slowing down to make a point. So it'll stick. I've been known to fidget with my ring on my finger as I'm preaching. I know it, but I say a lot of ums when I preach. That's just something that I, that I know I do. And then one of my kids mentioned to me on an occasion or two, Dad, you keep on repeating yourself. To which I respond, I'm glad you were listening. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure if I've ever said those words. Or was that nice in response? I probably had some snappy, uh, touchy comeback. No, you do. <laughs> I don't know. But in my defense, as you'll see, as we make our way through the letter to the church in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul was a repeater. He would repeat things. In fact, the whole Bible in my defense is like that. There are repeated phrases 
a rerun of whole stories and words that seem to be on repeat, like an echo, like I've heard that one before. So much so that there is a word in Greek, it's, again, a fancy word, it's hapax legomena. Now again, if you're interested in some Greek, well, here's a word, a hapax legomenon, which means that that word appears only once in Scripture. It appears only once in all of the Bible, and so it's a unique unicorn, and so you have to look it up, do some research, but it just means that there are only about 400 of these words, and everything else is repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. So back to my point. Repetition is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to repeat yourself. If you hear me say something more than once, I meant it. And even if I didn't, you may have needed to hear it twice. Over the next three months or so, we'll be spending some time in the book of Ephesians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Ephesus while he was still in prison. Now, if I might add, Ephesus was not much different than Sacramento. It was the capital city of a province in Asia, modern-day Turkey. It was located in a valley along a river. Ephesus was a culturally diverse and rich place, attracting people from all over the world. It was a bustling and busy city, a center, uh, a center significant for trade and business and wealth. It was also a place of learning and philosophy. Ephesus was known for their buildings and architecture. You may know the great amphitheater that would hold uh, 24,000 people, the largest theater of that time in the ancient world. Ephesus was a city steeped in culture, a place of great influence. And in the hustle and bustle of this urban city, Paul spent two years in this particular church. And as Paul thinks about them and about this church as he's in prison writing this letter, he writes to them of these saints at the church at Ephesus. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular letter is so fascinating that it deals with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian in the world, both in faith and also in practice. The book is neatly divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about spiritual truths, and then chapters 4 through 6, how we apply those spiritual truths to our life. Ephesians invites us to consider the work of God in choosing us, adopting us as sons and daughters of God through the work of Jesus Christ, and how a life lived in a manner worthy of our calling puts Christ on display to the world. One of the prominent themes in the book of Ephesians is the number one. We thought this would be a good title for our sermon series, One in Christ. Mind you, the one theme is repeated throughout this short letter to the Ephesians. So in chapter 1, 1, our spiritual union with Christ, again, becoming united with Christ, 
Or there's the work of Christ breaking down the dividing wall of hostility and making two hostile groups into one. Or you may know chapter 4 where Paul says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord and one faith and one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There's instructions to couples of two becoming one as the model for Christian households. And by the way, as long as we're on this theme of one in the book of Ephesians, verses 3 through 14, if you look at the Greek, is actually one long, complicated sentence. One long, run-on sentence. It's an extraordinary statement of God's redeeming grace. And as you read through it, you might see sentences with commas and periods and other punctuation marks in your text this morning, but in the Greek, it's really one long, complicated, run-on sentence. And if you are part of the grammar police this morning, just calm down. <laughs> and my friends, on this theme of one, I hope to just take one hour for my sermon this morning. <laughs> if you haven't been here, it's a joke. Um, but 12 times, 12 times from verses 3 to verse 12, Paul refers in various ways to the believer's spiritual union with Christ. What it means to be one with Christ. Now, they appear so frequently, you might accuse me of repeating myself, but I pray that in its frequency, you might not miss the impacts that Paul wants to make. Here, Paul identifies the one to whom we are united. And it is so beautifully written. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing. And these blessings we share by the marvelous grace of being united to Christ. He tells us that we are one, we are united, and we share in spiritual union with Christ. As Mia mentioned, the one who created everything and the one who created you and me unites us to himself. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to himself, all things in heaven and things on earth. And again, here this beautiful picture of a union, a coming together of two entities, of us and of God. And upon first glance, as you read through it, you might miss it because, again, if you've been raised in the church, if you've been going to church your whole life, you might miss it because this is what we know. We've been in the church and we've been in Christ but it's so beautifully written because, again, it's this beautiful picture of, of two foreign entities coming together. 
of two alien bodies coming together that should not be together. And it does not mean that we and God should not be in union with one another. That's not the point. The point is that in our sin, when you go back all the way to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, you see that those who were created in the image of God somehow broke that by falling into sin. And we know that Adam as our representative, as the one who serves as our representative head, sinned and caused a great alienation or a division between us and God. And that's why I think this is so beautifully written because, again, it's talking about a spiritual union of, of two bodies that should not be a sinless body and a sinful one. A God who knew no sin and we in our spiritual head, in, a, in, a, in Adam who sinned and by his sin all sinned. And so it's pretty profound. An interesting fact, as we look at this passage, not only is it one long sentence, but it's written in the past perfect tense. I know that in the English, we like to simplify tenses, past and present and future. I came or I saw, I came, I conquered. Actually, those are all past tense verses, uh, verbs. But what if I said, I saw, I come, I will conquer. Uh, again, that's how we simplify the, the English sometimes. But the past perfect tense is used to emphasize a completed action before another action actually takes place. And so, again, uh, for example, I might say something like, Daniel had baked a cake before you arrived. By the way, Daniel doesn't bake cakes. <laughs> By the way, Daniel doesn't actually bake anything at all. <laughs> but again, here's this past perfect tense of a past action, a past action, again, described in the present state. A perfect describes a present state which has resulted from a past action. And this use of the perfect emphasizes the present state of being, the continuing result, the finished product, the fact that a thing is, and God, again, that God has, and God still does. And again, when you read through Ephesians chapter 1, and when you read through that first chapter, and especially the first 14 verses, again, it's, it's filled with them. He not just blessed us, he has blessed us and continues to bless us. He has chosen us. He had chosen us before the foundation of the world. He had predestined us. So let me just ask a couple of questions here. One, what is spiritual union and what does it mean to be in Christ? And so again, in the first 11 verses, depending on how you read it, in Christ or in him is repeated at least 13 times. Spiritual blessings are given in Christ. So what does it mean to be in Christ? I think John, the gospel of John explains it well. Jesus there in one of the seven I am statements says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are in him, and he is in us. We draw our life and strength from Jesus. If we are cut off from him, we are spiritually dead. We come to be in Christ when we hear and believe the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. We invite Jesus into our hearts, and the Holy Spirit works to apply that gospel to our lives, and he comes to dwell within us. 
He comes to dwell in our hearts. And why is it so significant? Because, again, human beings created in the image of God. That's what it tells us in Genesis 2. We were created to live in fellowship and communion and covenant with God, trusting His promises and obeying His commands, loving and being loved. But here is the real issue. Here's why spiritual union is so significant. Because, again, sin destroyed that fellowship with God by rendering us guilty alienating us from God and deserving death. My friends, because of our sin, we are alienated from God. And the whole point of this is we have to remember where we once were. We have to remember what we were before His grace found us. That through the work of Christ, we have been united, we have been joined together with Him. I don't think I can express this enough. This has to be, I think, one of the most breathtaking passages in all the scriptures. We who were once separated from God, we who were once dead in our trespasses and sins, although God created us in His image to have abundant life and to have fellowship with Him, the image was marred and the fellowship was shattered and the entire human race went from innocence to sinfulness in one fell swoop. All have sinned, Paul tells us, and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a be beautiful truth. What a breathtaking portion of Scripture that tells us where we once were before grace found us and where we are now. The spiritual truth of a union with Christ that all the blessings that are His are also ours in Christ. All of the inheritance that is His is also ours as, as heirs and, and co-heirs with Christ. All the things that He accomplished for us on the cross is ours also, we can make a claim to those things that are His because those things that are His, He has promised them to be ours as well. That's what spiritual union looks like. That's what spiritual union is. Spiritual union means I get to share all the benefits of what it means to be united with Christ. You know, you and I are tempted to think, and I know I often do this as a Christian, that again, maybe Christ or maybe Jesus is a means to an end. That again, He's there so that He answers my prayers, that He can, he can bless us and to bless me with the things that we need. I have a problem, and so I need Jesus for my problem. I have a want, and so I, I have Jesus there for my wants. And here Paul changes the way we think so that Jesus is not a means to an end, but rather that, that Jesus is the center that there is no blessing, there is nothing for the Christian outside of Jesus. That what you get in the Gospels is not an inventory of secret blessings. What you get in the Gospel is Christ Himself. In other words, what, uh, what Paul seems to be saying, I think, in this, in this text, in this rich text, is that, again, we have Jesus, and again, being in Christ doesn't necessarily mean that we, we get, uh, that, again, those blessings are there for us necessarily, that we, we do what we can to coerce God to give us those things that we want or those things that we need. 
but that we get him. That we get to fellowship and commune with the Savior. Not how do I get the blessings that I need along the way in order to accomplish and fulfill my purposes for my life. It's not so much what we get by being united with him, but the benefits that we get to be with him. Question number two. So then what does spiritual union look like? The Bible contains an astonishing number of expressions and images that bear witness to this reality of our, um, of our being made one with, with Jesus. In the New Testament, we find literally hundreds of references to the believer's union with Christ. Let me just, let me just uh, cite a few. Uh, the believers are created in Christ, crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, baptized into Christ and in his death, united with him in his resurrection, seated with him in the heavenly places, dwells in our hearts. The church is the body of Christ. Christ is in us. We are in him. The church is one flesh with Christ. Believers gain Christ and are found in him. And again, there's a lot to unravel. And again, I was thinking about splitting up this, per this particular sermon into three, and I, I chose not to do that <laughs> this morning. And there's a lot to unravel here, and I think could be at least three sermons right here because it's so rich. But again, here are just some of the blessings that we see in this short section. Paul tells us he chose us. He used the word predestined. You need to get a little bit more information on that. I would say uh, there was a sermon I preached on Genesis uh, not too long ago. Uh, we talk about, or I talked about uh, predestination and election. Uh, please take a look at that. But again, predestination does not mean impersonal. It's not a deterministic fate. It means to mark out or decide beforehand refers to God's plan from the beginning of the ages. And it's reasonable that an all-wise God had a plan in mind before he created the whole universe. And notice what it says. Again, it's not... Uh, it's what, what, uh, notice what it is that constrains and compels God's choice. In verse 5, it says, in love. In love, he predestined us according to the purpose of his will. The purpose of his will alone, not compelled or constrained by anything in the creature, by nothing in us, but only by his free and sovereign choice, he, directs, he has directed them. And for all that uh, notice, uh, it is not an arbitrary or cold choice. Again, look at the text again. It says, in love, he predestined us. The question is, why did he choose us? Why me? It is a profound mystery. The great mystery, you know, is not why did God not choose everyone to be saved? God is free to treat us as our sins deserve. He's not required to save any. But he will be just in dealing with us all, and he will be perfectly righteous to condemn us for our rebellion and our sin. And the great mystery, you know, is why he would choose to save any of us at all. Why would he choose to save any at all? And the answer to that question from the text is love. In love, he predestined us. It's in his compassion it is in his character, who he is, that he chose us from the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world, he chose us in him. 
It also tells us he adopts us. Adoption is one of the most profound realities in the universe. It is one of the most profound realities in the universe. He comes to adopt us. The most extravagant gift of all. When we are joined to Christ by the Spirit, we come to share in the love between Father and the Son, the very same love that the Father has for His beloved Son. The Father loves us no less than He does His own eternal Son. This love is love of all loves. It's, indis- it's, a, it's, um, it's, a, it's a mystery. Um, it's endless. It's everlasting. It's, uh, it's, it's a life-giving. It's self-giving. And in Christ, we really and truly are the sons and, and daughters of God forever, the Scripture tells us. It tells us that He keeps us. And again, if you look at this text, and again, it doesn't say that necessarily, but as you read through it, you'll realize that again, it is choosing us, it is adopting us, He does not also unchoose us. You and I cannot unchoose if God is the one who chooses. If a poor orphan were adopted by a multimillionaire, he would say that he's fixed for life or she's fixed for life. He would have everything he needs as far as material comforts go. And being adopted by God means that we are fixed for eternity and God has written us into the will, so to speak, because he did it totally by his grace and not at all because of anything in us. And it is certain that he will keep his promises. He chose us. We cannot unchoose ourselves, and God certainly does not take it back. I've been reading a book by Dane Ortland um, called Gentle and Lowly, and I'm, I have a hundred of these copies in my, in my room that I would love to pass out. Uh, but there's a section in chapter 6 that I think explains this really, really well. And I thought I'd have to read it for you. He's talking about the sheep, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And he says this, uh, again, quoting from John chapter 6, he says, Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The writer says, Our strength of resolve is not part of the formula of retaining his goodwill. When my two-year-old Benjamin, this is again the author's son, begins to wade into the gentle slope of the zero-entry swimming pool near our home, he instinctively grabs hold of my hand, reminds me of my own children. He holds on tight as the water gradually gets deeper. But a two-year-old's grip is not very strong. Before long, it is not he holding on to me, but me holding on to him. Left to his own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand, but if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. And so with Christ. We cling to him to be sure, but our grip is that of a two-year-old amid the stormy waves of life. His sure grasp never falters. Psalm 63 verse 8 expresses the double-sided truth. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. 
We are talking about something deeper than the doctrine of eternal security or once saved, always saved, a glorious doctrine, a true doctrine, sometimes called the perseverance of the saints. If you're interested in, in Calvinistic theology, it's one of the terms that, uh, that he uses. Uh, we have come more deeply to the doctrine, again he says, to the perseverance of the heart of Christ. And I think that's so profound because, again, we like to think that we have uh, some, some will of our own, that we have some control over our life, that in some way, if I hold tight enough, if I cling tight enough to that finger, that somehow I can save myself. But again, again, this, this beautiful theology, again, this beautiful theology of the Reformers, and again, that, um, that uh, the fifth point of Calvinistic theology that says the perseverance of the saints is not a perseverance of the saints, but it's a perseverance of the heart and the compassion of God for you and for me. And how powerful that is, that it's God at work. And again, this beautiful section in chapter 1 is all about God's work. And again, here's some interesting things. Again, if, if these are interesting things. And again, that uh, verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence, or it's written in the past perfect tense. Here's a third one I think is... is is the most profound of them all is that it's God at work, nothing on our part. Nothing I can bring to God. Empty my hands, I bring to God and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve death. And this profound truth and this profound mystery of a spiritual union with Christ, that God in the from the foundations of the world, He chose us. So you are mine. And there's nothing that we can do. That it's God's grip on us that shows us the lavishness of His love towards us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. In verse 11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Not only do we have spiritual blessings in Christ in the past, our election, our predestination, which God decreed in eternity past, and in the present, our redemption, which God effected in the present day of His grace, but also in the future, our inheritance, which God has secured, that God has promised to continue this blessing that God lavishly provides for us. Again, He gives us a down payment of what is yet to come, is what He tells us. It is guaranteed. We don't have it fully quite yet. Paul tells us that in Christ there is something that is guaranteed for us, but we have not yet received it, at least in full. But after this world is over, we are, in, we are still in Christ, and we still experience the benefits of being in Christ. And this is the profound, 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 repeated three times, mystery. <laughs> 
My friends, if this is you, my friends, if you have professed Christ as your Savior and your Lord, and you believe you're a sinner, and that God sent His only Son to die for your sins, this is also our claim, that we are in Christ, that we are spiritually united in Christ, that we have an inheritance in Christ awaiting us, this profound already, but not yet. The bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, God impresses the truth and reality of our ongoing participation of what it means to be in Christ. The Lord's Supper, in other words, is a visible an edible experience of the exceeding good news. These are sensible signs that I explained a few weeks ago that these are things that we can actually touch and smell and taste. That Christ dwells in us. And my friends, that we dwell in Him. Christ brought us the eternal life that uh, of himself, that he gives us himself, and he continues to nourish and, and sustain us through his real presence. And again, we have this, uh, we are, we're one in Christ. We are one with Christ, again, through this gospel story. And we continue to receive Christ through the gospel of the bread and the wine. And again, he ordains it as a means of his ongoing presence of his body, and that we are his bride. Again, it's a participation in the blood and the body of Christ. And we're saying when we eat of it and we drink of it, we're saying and we're proclaiming that we are in Christ. And then we share in those benefits.